Hey friends, it's Katie from The Practical Idealist again, and today, instead of having my dad here for part two of our National Theater Live Frankenstein's talk, Destry's sitting in. Hey, what's up? Destry did not see National Theater Live's Frankenstein, but since I've been putting off recording the second part, he hounded me a little bit and said he would sit in and help prompt me instead of my sitting here and rambling. My dad and I once again went to see the second version of National Theatre Live, this time with Johnny Lee Miller playing the creature, and you'll hear him and I talking a little bit about it in the car, but I also wanted to, to sit down here and have a little bit more of a discussion about it and kind of compare and contrast the performances and also give some of the other things that I noticed when watching this version. I have to admit that I was a little bit biased in seeing this one because I really, really love Johnny Lee Miller. <laughs> I first became aware of him in the uh, 2009 Emma. Have I preached about the wonders of Mr. Knightley to you yet, Destry? I love that Emma. Anyway, the first thing that I noticed as far as differences in their creatures were concerned, I felt like Miller's creature was a lot more... He felt more humanistic to me, whereas Cumberbatch was very, like, there were a lot of twitches and jerks in his movement that he maintained throughout the entire show. And especially at the beginning when he's being born, it's almost grotesque, the movements that he made while he figures out how to stand. But with Miller, it was very thought out and it was very methodical. And, you know, my dad raised two kids, so he has had a chance to observe children on a very close basis. And he was like, yeah, it's like watching how a kid learns how to walk. The way he was choosing to move was very toddler-like. He took inspiration from his three-year-old. And I definitely saw that. And it was very, his movements were bold and ape-like. Like it felt very human. Whereas Cumberbatch felt a little bit more like an insect. There were a lot of irregular angles, which is easy, I think, for Cumberbatch because he's such a, a weirdly stringy man. <laughs> and you said that it seemed like Miller, his progression was more of a very young human progressing into an adult, whereas Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch. made it more kind of like he got so far and then he stopped for some reason. Yeah. Like his I, development stopped. First of all, you could understand Miller so much better. He had a vocal choice for the creature, but Benedict Cumberbatch's, you could understand maybe one word in seven that he said, except for when he like really wanted you to understand him. But Miller was, he was making more of a decision about where to use the different vocals and it was something that progressed throughout the show. Like it started off really hard to understand. And the same with his walking was very jerky and stilted. And as the show progressed, I felt like both his vocal choices and his physicality progressed with him in the show as he developed into a more thinking character. Whereas Cumberbatch, he, he hit a line and that was where he stayed for the rest of the show, which is not putting down that version of the character at all. It was just, it was different. This felt more like the definitive version of the show to me. Like I felt really impressed with Benedict Cumberbatch as Victor. I thought that he brought out different aspects of the character that I missed the first time around where Miller's Frankenstein was driven by power and passion. And one thing that kept hitting my mind with his Victor was genius at the edge of insanity, that Hamlet effect 
where it's like the person is so smart that there's every chance they're going to go insane. Whereas Cumberbatch's Victor relied on obsession. That's kind of the theme for that character no matter what is, you know, this obsession driving them. But I felt like Miller's Victor was going crazy with the obsession, whereas Cumberbatch's Victor was just in trance. Like, there was nothing else in life but it. So, which one would you say that you preferred? The second one that we saw. Felt like the definitive one. Was there anything else that, in the production itself, like, as a whole, that kind of led you to believe that? Or was it just the performances? Mainly the performances. I'm curious to see, like, if they were filmed back-to-back, which I feel like they must have. The relationships of their characters with everyone else on stage was very different. Like, it felt like a different play that we were watching. Well, wasn't that kind of the point, though? Yeah, and I told my dad this, too, that, you know, it's the same words, but everyone is going to have to play everything slightly differently because they're being given something different. And that's the beauty of theater, is that you're responding in real life time to what you're being given. I talked about in the first one how I didn't really like Elizabeth as a character and I didn't really like the actress playing her and I wasn't sure if it was just the character or the actress or both. I tend to think it's both now. But I will say that the actress definitely had more of a connection with Miller's Frankenstein. Like there was a lot of passion when she was talking to him as opposed to with Cumberbatch where she was just kind of like, why aren't you marrying me? Why don't you love me? It felt very stilted with that. And I don't know if that was a choice or if she just sucks because I honestly couldn't tell. I felt that Cumberbatch's response to her was more honest than Miller's response to her. Miller's Victor was all just passion driven. He passionately loved, he passionately hated, and he did everything with like this undercurrent of anger, which I think also translated into his creature. There was always this bubbling tension and bubbling energy within him, as opposed to Cumberbatch, who was very calculating with Victor. He was very thoughtful. You could see kind of a little edge of Sherlock in there, which I'm sure he he had to think about too. It's a scientist who's whose brain works in a very specific way. It was more controlled, but it was also more... I felt like it held more weight in a way because it was more controlled. So did you see it as more of like an acting exercise that they got paid for? Or did you think that they were very inspired by the material? I felt like they were inspired by the material in this version, in the Miller as a creature. And maybe that was the thing that was really hitting me, because that's a good point, is that it was fascinating watching them, how they flip-flopped and how they took on the roles differently, but I felt like you could tell who enjoyed which role better, because it seemed like there was more of a level of commitment to this particular version. And do you think that would have changed if you had seen it in an opposite order? I don't think so, because for me, the understanding of the piece itself wasn't in question. For my dad, just just a lot of it it was. But for me, like I, I knew what I was getting into. This is a story I'm really familiar with, and the themes are, are things that I knew coming into. But I do wonder for my dad, if he had seen it in a different version, if he would have liked the other one better, if he saw it second. Well, I mean, it sounds like he was able to enjoy the second viewing more regardless of that Mm -hmm. because he was more able to understand the story and the plot and the characters so 
for him, and I don't want to speak for him, but from <laughs> what I know of him, it sounds to me like that's kind of not important. Like, that question doesn't really matter right. to him. I think that whatever he saw the next time, he was automatically going to connect with more because he was so confused the first time. <laughs> that's probably true. <laughs> and, and this is the other thing about it. Well, everything about Frankenstein was fascinating to me. Like, this was brilliant. Next time it comes to theaters, hopefully it will come again next year. I will be seeing it. But part of the fun for me was getting to see it with my dad because I like seeing how he perceives the same material as me. Because when we go and see things, you know, we we have a similar way of, of viewing art. And while I might pick up on other things than you do, at least we're, we're kind of working on the same level. And my dad just picked up on things that I wasn't even seeing at all. I was like, where did you come up with that? I thought it was interesting how, for me, the the themes that I was picking up on, some of the industrial things that I felt like that was something the director put in, not something that was intrinsically in the story. And then it's called Frankenstein the Modern Prometheus. I thought that the parallels were very clear in that, you know, with Victor being Prometheus and the creature as God, or like the gods punishing him for creating the creature. The power of creation only belongs to the gods. So I thought that that was pretty clear. What made me laugh was that my dad really caught on to the the Paradise Lost parallels, because he doesn't really know what Paradise Lost is, but he does understand the Christianity side of it. So it was interesting seeing how those were themes that he, he caught on to more than I did even. Was there anything that you completely disagreed with him on? I think that maybe he was taking it more at face value than I was. Since the creature at one point does say, you know, I connect to Satan. Because he and uh, Victor have this conversation about Paradise Lost. And Victor goes, I guess you think you're Adam then. And the creature's like, no, actually, I identify more with Satan. And you'll hear my dad was saying kind of, since he identifies with it, he is choosing to live in that manner because of that. But what I find more interesting is if the creature is Satan, I don't think that makes Victor God. I think that makes Victor man being tormented by Satan because the creature then pursues Victor to the grave and Victor is constantly pursuing Satan to the end. So I liked that more because I thought it was more interesting. But again, that that's not necessarily what they said, but it was making me laugh. My dad's just like shaking his head at me. He's like, where do you come up with this? It's like, this is what's fun about it. A piece that offers this amount of thinking material is what makes theater amazing. So one of the things that I listened to when I was starting to edit the first week was your dad said something along the lines of, I would prefer to know what the authorial intent is and then let my imagination kind of grow from that point. And I think that that's fair, but I think that you guys were kind of missing each other a little bit. I think that another portion <laughs> of what he was trying to say was that in writing something for entertainment purposes that you need to make sure as the author that people are able to follow the basic plot and story and character points without having to use their imagination to fill in gaps my issue was with that was not so much that I don't believe that it is the job of the author to give clear directions as to the story. My issue was that at the beginning of the show, after the creature is born, Frankenstein walks in, sees the creature, freaks out, and runs off. And then the creature stumbles out of the lab and into the city. My dad kept missing that part because apparently a lighting cue, a sound cue, a physical stage cue... And a goddamn train coming down the center of the stage 
wasn't enough to tell you that there was a shift in scene. I don't know what else that you want. <laughs> Sometimes you can't be walked step by step through it when you're being given visual cues. I just think that it is an important distinction to be made is that a lot of people think that, well, because it's intellectual and you can kind of glean whatever you want to glean from it, that that kind of absconds you from having a coherent plot line mm -hmm. and characters. And I think that it's good to be able to marry the two where the particular beats of the story inspire more intellectual thought as opposed to, we're just going to throw a whole bunch of weird things in and see if you gather something from it. That was a point that I thought that he didn't make clearly that I kind of wanted to piggyback well on. you're a writer do you feel like you have to walk people like lead them by the hand through everything that you're intending to say or would you rather them have an individual experience i think that it's very difficult either one of two things happens number one you know your own story and characters so well that you write them in a way that you feel comfortable with with a knowledge that you as the author have about them and that doesn't translate to anybody and they're just confused as to it feels like they missed something. Like you didn't mm -hmm. introduce information properly in a way that makes them connect with the characters the way that you obviously do. Or, and this was the issue I think in the new Halloween, is that everything's so surface level that we have to make sure that we state these ideas and state the relationships clearly enough that they go so far as to say it instead of show it. Okay. I was just curious. Like, I understand wanting to be walked through what's going on, but also, to me, that's kind of the fun part of theater. You can have a play that's been done for years and years and years and years and years and millions of productions of it, and it'll be different every time you see it. Because it is kind of open to interpretation, unless it's specifically written. Like, I know a lot of August Wilson's pieces are specifically written with, you are not allowed to change any of the speech, you are not allowed to change any of the sets, you are not allowed to change any of these things, because he wants it to be a timeless piece. It's always going to be the same no matter how you see it. Mm -hmm. And that's fair enough. But I kind of like the idea of being able to see multiple productions of one show, all which are different, all of which you get something different out of. Because that's kind of the fun part of art for me. You can have four people come and see the same production and they're going to come out of it getting something different. But also just being a perceptive person as well as an audience member I think is important. <clears throat> oh yeah. Because a lot of people go in at face value and I just want to see yeah, the plot and the characters happen in front of me for about two hours then I'm out, you know. And they don't want to think any further about it. And there's a place for that. I'm not saying that there's not. And that's why I wanted to make that point. Yeah. Is because I don't think that you have to automatically be the kind of person that, well, I'm going to dig really deep into all these thoughts oh, no. and feelings and themes. But from an authorial place, you have to be able to marry those two ideas. Is that, okay, I want the random moviegoer or theater goer to the enjoy this. Joe. Without having to, like, reach for all of these high ideals and mm -hmm. thoughts. But I also want to integrate these big ideals and thoughts into what I'm writing so that the people who want to look for that can look for that. It's not just for a certain type of person. Exactly. And I mean, I felt like it was pretty obvious. I think that a lot of the issue, especially with your dad, was the fact that he was sitting in a movie theater with popcorn <laughs> watching a quote-unquote live production. production. And that's a bit jarring yeah. to some people. They're just like, well, I'm obviously watching a movie and movies have very particular sets. So you know when right. a scene has changed because, oh, we're in a different complete place. As opposed to a theater show where it's like, 
Well, we switched this backdrop ever so slightly, so therefore, we're in Mary Sue's house instead of <laughs> Sue Mary's house. Like, sometimes it can't be confusing. Well, and I think it's also worth mentioning that the majority of theater my dad has seen has been the community theater that I've been in, and that's all been Shakespeare, so there's really, like, you won't understand what they're saying anyway, so <laughs> whether or not you know where they're coming from or where they're going doesn't matter. I say that in jest, of course, because <laughs> Shakespeare nerd here, but it was just interesting being able to talk with him about it afterward and see it from his eyes, because I was going to see this no matter what, and I just was like, hey, do you want to take me so I don't have to take the bus and come and see something cool too? So if you had seen it live, would you have made a point to see both versions? Yes. Okay. I don't think that's necessary. If you just want to go and see something really good, just go and see it. Like, you're not going to have a bad time no matter what, period. But do you feel like they're two pieces of a whole, or do you feel like they stand alone? Or that they can stand they alone? They can stand alone, but I do feel like you're missing a level of it if you don't see both of them. Because part of the joy of it for me was seeing how each actor held on to a part of the creature and their victor and part of the victor and their creature. Because these are two phenomenal actors. And every time they were speaking together, I was literally, like, I was almost on my knees. Like, I was like, yes, 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 keep talking. I loved seeing how, especially in Miller's production, he really had this adorable connection to his creator. And I felt like you saw that less with Cumberbatch. Because with Cumberbatch, I felt like he was always trying to show up Victor. He was always like, yes, I am smarter than you. You abandoned me and now look how much smarter I am than you. The only reason that he was pursuing Victor was because he had something that he wanted, which is the ability to create another creature like him. Whereas with Johnny Lee Miller's creature, there was always that feeling of like, just love me. I just need your approval. Just love me. What? You thought I did something good? Yeah, I did something good. It was almost painful to watch because you, you know going into it how it's going to end and knowing that there is no way for him to get what he wants you're like just let my baby be happy like you were talking about earlier with Cumberbatch he got to a certain point in his development externally and then he stopped and I think that he's like well if I can't earn your approval through my external actions then I have to have you respect me exactly as opposed to flipping it around, Johnny Lee Miller had a more traditional way of looking at it where, as a child, you looked up to your parents. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful moments in the show is the first big betrayal. I wouldn't even say that's when Frankenstein leaves him. I would say the first big betrayal is when the old man's son is like, you're gross, go away. And the creature freaks out and burns down the old man's house with him in it. During that little passage there, he's like pacing around and he's like, what do I do? What do I do? And and he's like, well, what do all of the heroes in all of these books I've read do? They get revenge. He has a very tit for tat kind of mentality because he is logical. I'm very, I'm a very logical creature. But as Victor points out, yes, you're logical, but your logic is flawed. And here's why. And that's something that goes through all the way to the end where after Victor betrays him, the creature goes, well, you lied to me. You lied to me and you destroyed something I love. That means I have to lie and I have to destroy something you love. And that's why he kills and rapes Elizabeth, even though he doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. Because to him, the logic of the universe is tit for tat. 
With Cumberbatch's creature, it was more of a spiteful thing. It wasn't so much like, because this, therefore this. It was, this is the way of the world. And if this is the way of the world, I have to be worse than the worst because he did the worst. It felt more philosophical as opposed to Miller being very, this equals this, so I must do this. Cause and effect. Yeah, cause and effect. But I felt like Cumberbatch thought about it more. <laughs> like his creature was more calculating in, I know that this is how I want to do it. Well, did that make his version of the character worse? Yeah, I felt like Cumberbatch's creature was more cold. Was he less redeemable? That was something that I asked my dad. And it's something that I have to continue thinking about, I think. Because I don't necessarily think that either character in either version are irredeemable. And I think that's kind of the point, is that they redeem each other. Like, mm -hmm. their existences are dependent upon each other. They balance the scales. Yeah, they exactly. As far as, like, the good and evil and what makes sense. Together, they make a not horrible creature. I will say that I was less sympathetic to Cumberbatch's creature. Because, again, I felt like he was consciously making decisions. And he, he was being more pointed about the decisions he was making. As opposed to Miller's creature who was relying on instinct. Like he was going, yes, this makes sense. Yes, this makes sense. Yes, this makes sense. I do this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that Miller's version of Frankenstein, the doctor, was more obsessive. He was more like passionate. So would you say that that translated into his creature in the way that he was constantly in pursuit of this one thing? Yes. Like he wanted this one particular thing from the doctor and that was why he did all of these horrible things because this is my personal opinion I should say <laughs> but as human beings when we are so laser focused on one point of entry everything else becomes a little bit gray everything else becomes a little bit less important so because things are less important on the whole in contrast to this dream this goal of yours all of these mistakes and missteps are happenstance like they happen because you're in pursuit of something as opposed to cumberbatch where like you said he was more calculating about i'm deciding to be this way not necessarily there's two sides to obsession there's the kind of obsession that puts you in your own little world and then there's the kind of obsession that you put out to everyone else in the world and make them part of it mm-hmm and that's kind of what Miller was doing. Everyone else has to get screwed no matter what because I have to do what I have to do. The tension was palpable. Like he was shaking through the whole thing. There was a really funny part where he and Elizabeth are talking and Miller is just like sweating. There's just sweat just dripping. He's drenched in sweat and Elizabeth goes up and kisses him and then she's drenched in sweat and she's like very subtly trying to wipe it off of her face without making it seen. And that's like the entire show. He's like, I am so in on this and I am so engaged and I am so doing all of this. Whereas Cumberbatch, his obsession is, I'm kind of going over here, I'm talking about this. Oh, you're speaking to me now. Okay, I'm still thinking about this over here. Oh, you're speaking again. And it was more that quiet, drawn in obsession. And I felt like his creature was like that too, in that it was very, I know what I need to do to get to my goal. And I'm going to do whatever is necessary in order to get that goal. But I'm going to do the most logical thing to make it the shortest path to my goal, as opposed to Miller's creature, which was like, well, this makes sense. So I'm going to do that. And not thinking too much beyond that. So do you believe that that contrast between their versions helped you to feel like the Miller creature version was the more definitive one? 
Yes. And maybe it was just my own personal feelings about the characters going into it. Because Cumberbatch's Victor is how I've always seen that character. Science trumps humanity, so he forgets how to learn emotion. His thought process, it's so much more important that why would I bother interacting with humans? This is more important. And that was his creature too. He's like, well, I already know that I can't participate in normal humanity, so why should I bother? So I'm going to go and I'm going to do this because this is what makes sense. In order for me to live and in order for me to be happy, I need this. And in order to get this, this is what I need. But Miller's Frankenstein was a lot more volatile. Like the part right after Victor kills the bride of Frankenstein, there's a line and I thought it was very telling how the two men delivered the line. The creature is like, but I loved her and I told you all these things about how I loved her. And Victor says, love is a lie. Cumberbatch's Frankenstein was like, love doesn't exist. Love is an emotion. You know, love has all of these chemicals or whatever. Whereas Miller's Victor was, love is a lie. Like he screamed it. It's him reacting violently to a belief that something that is not quantifiable cannot exist. As opposed to Cumberbatch who was just like, it's not real. So why should I bother quantifying it? Like maybe you can, but it's not important. So why bother? Mm -hmm. That one line really defined the two guys. Was there anything that you thought was handled poorly? No. Anything that you were critical of? Other than Elizabeth as a character, I felt like it was the actress's fault because the character was the character. And there wasn't much more or less that she needed to do other than be there and be sweet. And oddly sexual for some reason. The point was that she wanted him to create in the traditional sense. I mean, what that sounds like to me, because Cumberbatch is so reserved as opposed to the other one being so passionate... She's like, I just need you to be passionate about me and our life. But see, that's the funny thing. With Miller, she was passionate. With Cumberbatch, eh. I don't know if she just wasn't attracted to him or what the deal was. I mean, she said all the lines and they did all the same things, but it was a very different dynamic. Assuming that she hadn't gotten raped and killed and that they had gotten married and this wasn't an issue. I made a note about what their lives would have been like. (laughs) So for Miller's Frankenstein, they would have had a passionate love affair, Elizabeth ultimately receiving very little in return for doting on him. They probably would have spent a lot of time fighting about the fact that he was never there because he was always off chasing the next rainbow. Victor would have seen children as annoyances and they would have been utterly ignored and he would have worked himself into the grave, probably trying to discover immortality once he had created life. He would have been trying to figure out how he could live forever. Cumberbatch's Frankenstein, they probably would have had a decent relationship. It would have been very quiet and she probably would have been very bored. She would always be playing nursemaid to his obsessions. So she would always be the one like, hey, have you eaten today? Hey, make sure you come over here. Nope, you actually do have to sleep at some point this week. He probably would have learned to love his family and he would have drawn any child that they had into his obsession, happy to have a companion and someone that he could finally talk to about all of his stuff. So would you say that his version is more absent-minded? Yes. He was more what you would expect a crazy little scientist to be. Like, he wasn't just like, I am a crazy scientist who created life, like you see in the old horror movies, which is more than what I saw of Miller. He was more like, I did a thing, and I didn't know I could do a thing, but I did a thing, and now I don't know what to do with the thing. So what it sounds like to me is that Miller took more inspiration from how the character is typically played in popular media as opposed to Cumberbatch, who took it more from the source material 
and the time that the source material was written in. Yeah, I think that's fair. Because when I think of that specific time period, I do think of those reserved relationships and nothing being very overt as far as the lovey-dovey sexuality. Like, it was very like, we have created a male-female partnership. It was a kind of colder time at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So you would say that Cumberbatch was more violent? In their their first conversation right after the creature kills Frankenstein's brother, Victor keeps trying to kill the creature and he the creature disarms Victor and like shoves him down, like holds him down. And when Miller was playing the creature, you could really see a response of, holy shit, you're strong. When Cumberbatch was playing the creature, it was more Victor was too terrified to do anything else. So would you say that Miller was more lashing out like a child would if they were having like a temper tantrum? I think that it was more that he was unaware of his own strength. Cumberbatch's was more Machiavellian in that he was more concentrated about the violence he did. He chose the violence and he chose how to use the violence and when to use the violence and where to use the violence. Well, I mean, if he was more uncomfortable with his particular body, then if he can coordinate something such as violence in a logical, very particular way, then why wouldn't he? Yeah, it was more calculated. You would think that that would be the creature I would enjoy more, because that's more... Well, it's different. It's it's more different, but I felt like Miller's creature was more well done. Like, it made more sense as a character to me. Would and you... I felt that their pairing made more sense, too. So would you say that the Cumberbatch monster version was a better version of the original novel, as opposed to the Miller version being a better version of the popular media take on the story? I don't think that that's necessarily fair. Because, I mean, as a horror movie guy, of course, yeah. I've, I've been very privy to all the... All of the Frankenstein. The monster knowledge and stuff like that. So just from my personal experience with Frankenstein as a story and as a concept, it just seems to me like in popular media, there's this view of like this big hulking creature that's sweet, but then can turn that into violence. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the Mary Shelley original intention, which is more, like you said, a philosopher who yeah. talks and he speaks and he has he reasoning reasons. and logic. And so, yeah, so that's yeah, where I, I guess that's that true. From. It felt like Miller's creature was more true to the spirit of it. I really loved Cumberbatch's philosophical view of it. I loved his mental processes with it. His physical performance, while brilliant, was so intense that it was distracting to what he was doing. So you couldn't enjoy that philosopher. You couldn't enjoy that brilliant, terrifying mind without struggling to understand the words that were coming out of his mouth, which was the point. Because again, that's something the creature is always saying. He's like, well, if I didn't look like this, then I would fit right in now, wouldn't I? Maybe I'm a genius too, but you'll never know because I look like this. Mm -hmm. That was a choice. Again, brilliant. It was amazing. And it was phenomenal to watch how he fully committed to that. He must have died every night doing this. <laughs> Along with the 20 pounds of makeup they're all wearing and the bald cap he had to wear because he was doing Sherlock at the time. So he wasn't allowed to shave his head, which was the request of the uh, director. But because of the fact that Cumberbatch was doing Sherlock, Miller got to shave his head for the creature and got to wear a wig for Victor. The reverse. Yes, exactly. They Mm. continued to reverse. (laughs) But the performance was so good that you miss the character. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to Miller, who just got it all. The performance and the character was there. You can respect the physical performance and the vocal choices he made while still getting all of it. Did you ever feel like the way that they were handling each individual character as they reversed was being influenced by the way that the other person was doing that character in the other version? I think that it was pretty clear that they both decided how they were going to do each individual character individually. Okay. I mean, the relationships were different too. They had to be because they're two different people. But the characters were so different that I think it was very clear that they had a different train of thought for each of them. And I know that not just in the behind the scenes thing that they showed at the beginning, but in some of the other behind the scenes things I watched, not only did they have the director, Danny Boyle, but they also had a movement director. From what I gathered, he was more like one of the stage combat people who was making sure that everything was going off smoothly and no one was getting hurt, especially during the birthing scene. There were some times where like I was watching, I'm like, oh my God, someone's going to break their neck because they were flailing around on the stage mm-hmm. as they're figuring out how everything works. Right. There was some very, very violent movement there. But I did notice that they were letting them, for the most part, make the movement choices themselves. Like there were certain markers they had to hit, like right when they flip out of the womb or whatever you want to call it. They have a moment where they just twitch. Mm-hmm. Like the entire body is like electricity is going through them. So they had to hit that moment. They had to hit a moment where they stood and fell. And then at the end, they had to end up somehow back at the womb. Because that's when Frankenstein finds him and he's like, holy shit, you're moving. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it looked like they pretty much decided what they wanted to do on their own. Who would you recommend this to? Would you recommend this to the kind of person that has seen all the other iterations of the Frankenstein story? Who is this for, in your opinion? I do think that it was made with the awareness that in popular culture, and this is something I think that the writer even says, the creature or the monster as it is now known, the fact that it's being called the monster should tell you enough. The monster loses his voice and people forget that in the book, he is a thinking, feeling conversating creature and that's why they made a conscious decision to call him the creature and not the monster except for when someone chooses to call him that right but also if you're familiar with the story i think that you're going to be pleased to see the return to the intention of it being this philosophy tale and not so much a monster of the week Did it have an audience in mind or did it just kind of exist for anybody who had the interest to go see it? I think it pretty much existed for anyone who had the interest. And I have to admit that I am one of those people. I am one of those people who are going to pick things apart. It's something that I care about, so of course I'm going to do that. But if you are interested in the story at all, you're going to like this. The performances alone are worth it. But it was also visually stunning. And if you have any interest in the medium of theater at all, you're going to be blown away by just the set effects alone. I can only worship the ground that that poor stage manager walked (laughs) on because holy crap, I mean, just the lighting cues. I mean, they had things flying in from the ceiling. They had like this part where something happens on a lake. So they had to drop this pathway from the ceiling and stagehands had to come out and lay the pathway and then the pathway got lifted. It was a turning stage and then they had a track down the center for the train. They had rain that came down at one point. They had a track (laughs) of grass that the creature eats. And yes, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller both ate grass in this production. There was fire coming up from the ground at one point. There was a screen in the back that changed often. There was a path of Edison bulbs along the ceiling, which continually flickered, signifying moments of inspiration and also birth. 
Oh, there was also this giant set piece that came out from the spinning ground. On one side, it was a tilted set, which was the Frankenstein's home. And then on the back side was the workshop where he created the Bride of Frankenstein. And that has to come up and go down it other points too. They didn't leave anything out. I don't even want to know how much that production costs. <laughs> Just getting Benedict Cumberbatch alone. <laughs> but yeah, it was stunning. Is there anything that you wish that they had done? Anything that, that you wish that they had explored further? No. Other than getting a different actress for Elizabeth. Let me put that in. She just really bothered me and I don't know why and I feel bad. I'm going to have to see what else she's been in and see if maybe it wasn't her. Because I do feel kind of bad that I feel this negatively about her. But I really, really disliked her. But no, I mean, this is one of the few productions I can say that I went into it with extremely high expectations, as you know I did. Because I was talking about it four weeks beforehand. And I left feeling even more satisfied than I could have expected. It not only met my expectations, but it wildly exceeded them. I couldn't have come up with half of the things that were on that stage. That's why I'm not an Emmy Award winning <laughs> director. But it expanded my brain in ways that I was not ready for. And I've seen big productions before. I've seen big Shakespeare productions, which made made use of sets in a ways that I haven't seen before, but the production value was something I was certainly not prepared for. And I don't think I was expecting it to be that big. But yeah, if you ever get a chance to see this, just do it. Even if you don't think you're going to like it, you'll find something to like about it. If only just to see Bandit Cumberbatch more than half naked. <laughs> you see a lot more Bandit Cumberbatch than I ever wanted to see. Do you think that it would work with different people? It could if they were both the same level of committed that these two guys were. They would have to be very particular people. They have to be very physical people and they have to be extremely dedicated. But yeah, I think it could definitely work with other actors. It would just be a, it would be a hard <laughs> sell. Anyone in mind? I mean, I feel like Johnny Depp, not now Johnny Depp, but Johnny Depp from like 15 years ago. From like 15 years ago. Yeah. He has that body awareness that I always look for. So creature. I know that they would switch, yeah, but mostly for the creature then? Yeah, more for the creature, I would say. Because like I said, you have to be so aware of yourself. Tom Hardy would be a good one for the creature too, actually. He has that same level of body awareness too. Joseph Doctor? Fiennes, maybe oh. 15, 20 years ago, he would have been a great Frankenstein creature. Like, really good one. He was the uh, the bishop in American oh, yeah. Horror Story I Asylum. I forgot about that. But he when you watch him right and then his brother, you're like, okay. Actually, <laughs> the two of them would be fascinating. That would be interesting, yeah. I would pay to see that production. <laughs> well, I guess that's probably it, I guess. Okay. I really loved this. This was a really special one for me. It hit the spot on several levels. Anything involving characters I can talk about at length is something I love, but it was so beautiful. Everything about it was elegant and it kept me engaged the whole time and it made me feel. It made me feel. I think that's where you have to leave it. It definitely made you feel. It hurt me deeply. <laughs> like I posted a picture on Instagram like, hey we're about to go see the movie and then afterward I'm just like, my face is tears. <laughs> Mascara is coming down. I'm like, I can't handle this. It was funny though. I had been talking to the uh, the person tearing tickets mm -hmm. while my dad was getting popcorn, and you know he was like, "Oh, where are you seeing?" And I told him he's like, "Never heard of that before." <laughs> and uh, as we left, he got a look at me. He's like, "That good, huh?" I was like, "You have no idea." <laughs> 
<laughs> so what is your thought about events like this? Where they take a production that's either been filmed or is being performed live and they stream it or they place it in theaters. What is your take on that? You think that there should be more of it? Do you think that there's enough of it already? Or like, is that a practice that you think should continue? I have mixed feelings about it because as a rule, I think that theater works because of the way it's formatted. And I was very aware of the fact watching this production that I was missing a lot by not seeing it live and not being in the room with people. And I think that that's not something that you can lightly overlook in these cases. We have a lot of live theater recordings and I think that it's easy to forget that just because you're seeing it doesn't mean that you're seeing it. Just because you're getting to watch the production doesn't mean that you're experiencing it. And that's why things like this make me a little bit sad. Because while I love the fact that it is preserving a production, yeah. the problem with theater is that you can never truly preserve a production. Because mm -hmm. it's not meant to be preserved. It's meant to exist and then die. So I'm never going to complain if I'm going to get the chance to see something I wouldn't get to see otherwise because I never would have been able to see this in a million years. It's a marvel of the modern age. It's a marvel of the modern age. <laughs> but it troubles me that this could be something... I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with the live productions yeah. on TV. And now. that's what was just crossing my mind too is that you can't really say that you're seeing a piece of theater unless you're seeing it live. Mm -hmm. I saw a glimpse of what that production was. I didn't see the production. And I have many issues with the live theater on TV things, <laughs> none of which we'll really get into right now because that's a conversation to be had later. Oh, we're going to talk more about that when Rent Live happens. No, we're not. I, refu <laughs> I refuse to discuss that in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't exist as doesn't far exist. as I'm concerned. It doesn't exist. The main issue I have with it is that you're getting this watered down piece of art that ceases to be itself, at least in most capacities. Okay. I understand Jesus Christ Superstar. I understand Sound of Music. Yeah. I even understood Grease. How are they going to do Rent <laughs> on television? Right. I mean, just honestly consider this for a second. Even taking out the swear words. What are they going to do with Contact? Throw it out. What are they going to do with the entirety of La Vie Bohème? Um, like, mm. just the entire song. They're going to have to take out entire passages of that song in order to do it on television. I, I just can't wait to read the tweets the next day. I don't understand what any of these references Entropy. were. And I need you to explain to me exactly oh. what these things are. Because as a younger millennial, I don't understand the idea <laughs> of rotary phones. Have you seen that? On The Voice, someone uh -huh. did a cover of like a really old song talking about like call me and operator or something uh -huh. like that. Well, I just, I really don't know what an operator is. And Mariah Carey just like falls out. She's, She's like, like, I'm like, done. I can't do this. This is why I turned bipolar and now I'm crazy. <laughs> I can't deal with y'all no more. If you can't do the entire production as mm. it was intended to be seen, what's the point of doing the production? Yeah. And that's ultimately why I have to keep coming back to. So even if you're filming it, you're not seeing all of it. That's why I'm saying I have a very mixed feeling about it because I will never turn it down. Never will I turn down a chance to see more theater. I will never do that ever. But part of the bittersweet feeling that I had leaving it was knowing that I didn't actually see the production. <laughs> And do you feel like it can ever bridge the gap in any capacity? No. Theater is a live medium. And maybe if they actually broadcasted it live, but if it was a single camera Virginia. and streamed, that's still pushing it. Mm -hmm. But... 
that's maybe the one situation in which it's a... But isn't that the idea of all these TV ye- versions, too, is that it's just like, we have a live audience. But you're then... not, though. Okay, if they were doing that, only they were streaming it into a movie theater, and they were just letting them do it on a stage, like, they were just doing the production, yeah. again, that would be different. The problem with the TV versions is that, number one, they can't do the full production. They just can't. No. Number two is, they're not casting people that would actually be cast in those roles. Uh-uh. Fight me on this. Go <laughs> ahead. Fight me on this. They are not <laughs> casting people in those roles who would actually get cast in those roles if the production were being done for real. Done. Although they are starting to bridge the gap with that a little bit. They are a little bit. musical theater especially is becoming more mainstream and people are starting to know the people who are currently on Broadway. That's that's also, that's bringing up another issue, which we'll have to talk about later, is the fact that celebrity is invading Broadway. Mm. So that still is, is a moot point with me. Yeah. Because just because you're a celebrity who's on Broadway doesn't mean that you're a musical theater person. Right. Sarah Bareilles. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can't have theater on screens. Do you think that there are things that work better for that purpose? Like, can you think of any specific examples of, if I had to see a filmed version of this thing that I would never get to see, I would still go see it? Versus, wow, why did they even film that in the first place? I just don't think that musicals at all translate to being filmed. Because you're always going to be missing something. The angles are always going to be awkward. Everyone's always going to look funny. And it's always going to feel intrusive. Like, there's never been a musical that I've seen where you have not seen a camera at one point. Mm-hmm. If you're watching a straight play, it's a little bit different because it's a little bit more easy to track. Mm-hmm. You're still missing things, obviously, but I would have less of an issue seeing a Sam Shepard play being filmed <laughs> than seeing a Stephen Schwartz musical being filmed. Musicals are impossible. You miss so much not seeing it live. And do you think that that also translates <clears throat> to the the musicals <clears throat> of your like the My Fair Ladies and the... Those are different, though, because a lot of those were created without trying to emulate the stage production. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that nowadays musicals forget about because they're trying to be the stage production. While with, also being a movie. While being, also being a movie. Like, if you're going to do a movie version of a play, that has to be a movie version of a play. Like, when they eventually do In the Heights, it better be a movie of In the Heights right. and not like, oh, it's In the Heights as a movie. No, it's not going to work that way. And do you think that they bridged that gap at all with the Rent movie or was that just a... Uh, they had to sacrifice too much, I'd say. Because yeah. it wasn't the worst thing I've ever seen. Like, I don't have as big of a issue with it as a lot of people did. Part of that is just because I love these people so much that seeing them is just a joy to me. We are going to be doing a commentary for Christmas or Christmas New or Year's. New Year. Well, I would say New Year because in the movie it's New Year. Okay. But I usually will watch Rent on Christmas because I'm a psychopath. <laughs> And I will cry the entire time. (laughs) I always do. It's my Christmas tradition. I cry on Christmas. (laughs) Don't we all? Yes, we do. (laughs) So, um, any other thoughts? Anything that you you held back that you need to express before we say goodbye here? I don't want to say goodbye to it. I won't (laughs) go see it again. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you for listening to us babble as usual. I hope that you enjoy listening more to Katie's take on things, because I know that I've been rather vocal, especially during the October Halloween season, because that's kind of my jam. But I'm just glad that you got the opportunity to kind of sit down with the folks 
the very few folks that we have <laughs> the uh, three listening, people listening. right <laughs> to kind of express yourself a little bit better like do you feel like that was yeah beneficial? I, mean, I think that you got to you got to know a little bit more of my nerdy side <laughs> rather than your nerdy side oh yes and as always we do have a twitter it is at idealist underscore the I used to be posting every day. Of course, that got monotonous for me. So now it's every other day. But I have found my groove. So you will be getting consistent content in some way, shape, or form. To go along with the Christmas season, we're going to have four weeks of four things. And that's going to kill my soul a little bit. No, it won't. We'll watch (laughs) some really bad Christmas movies. Like the Vanessa Hudgens Christmas movie coming up. Starring Vanessa Hudgens. And Vanessa Hudgens. As... Vanessa, Vanessa Hudgens. Hudgens. <laughs> British Vanessa Hudgens. I can't. I, can, I cannot wait for this movie. I'm so excited. Oh, goodness. And we also have an Instagram. That is just the Practical Idealist. Or it is our names, Destry and Katie. Well, is there anything else you want to say to the peoples about your little journey here? No, I, I hope that... You guys had fun listening to uh, me ramble and getting to know my dad, too, because why not? <laughs> it's th- a family picture. <laughs> I think that he enjoyed himself, and I think he, he was highly amused when I asked him if, if he would mind if I recorded him for this. He was like, <laughs> okay, sure. I felt like this time around, he, he actually thought about having things to say. So we'll be talking more about this kind of stuff in the future. There is stuff coming, yeah. rest assured. Uh, Christmas things. Alrighty, guys. Well, thanks for listening, as always, and we will see you in the next one. Bye.